John chapter 21, if you haven't already. If you are using one of the Bibles that is under the seat in front of you, you'll find John 21 on page 590. And this morning, as you heard, we'll be in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. The Apostle John, who is writing this book, is wrapping up his account of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has, at this point, finished telling his witnessed up-close story. He just has a few loose ends that he wants to tie up, and that's what he does in this chapter, in chapter 21, which is a sort of epilogue to his book. We will take this chapter in three sermons, so this morning and then Lord willing, two following Sundays, and then we will be done with the Gospel of John. I mean, not done, but... The sermon series will be done. When we started this sermon series, I had to look back, the first Sunday of 2015, and we're almost to the end of 2016. So we've been in it for quite a while. By the time we're done, it will be 78 sermons. And uh, I've enjoyed it, and I will miss it. I will miss it. During the month of November... If you're interested in knowing, I will preach a brief four-part series on the fear of God, and then December, we will carry on with our tradition of celebrating Advent for four Sundays in December, and then in January, we will begin a 12-week look at the book of Job. I was trying to decide between... 12 years and 12 weeks, and so we're going with 12 weeks. And as well, uh, real briefly, since I'm on the topic of teaching, I know that Josh mentioned it, but next Sunday evening, I'd like to invite any of you and all of you to our baptism class. We don't offer that class, but a couple times a year, and it's time for us to have the class again. Josh mentioned if you haven't been baptized, we would encourage you to come to the class. Absolutely. If you have been baptized and you are not sure what baptism even means or meant, because maybe it was a long time ago for you, or you just want to be sort of reminded what the significance of baptism is and and why we do that, it's typically something that many Christians don't really have a good handle on or understand the meaning behind it. So I want to extend the invitation to that baptism class again to any of you and all of you who are interested in coming and talking for a couple hours about baptism. As well, I think there's a special application and it may be of special interest uh, to those of you who have uh, little children. Because you are going to need to navigate this with your kids, and you're going to need to help them make a decision as to when they are going to be baptized, and that can be a very difficult and tricky thing, 
And we talk about that for a good portion of our time in that baptism class. So parents, maybe you've been baptized, but now you're thinking, well, what is, gonna, what is this going to look like for my kids? Please come to the baptism class. And we're going to talk about all of that. So we would like you to sign up. So at the conclusion of service, if you're interested in come and sign up. If you don't sign up, you're still, of course, welcome, but that would help us out. But this morning, we are, for one of the last times, turning our attention again to John's Gospel. And the subject of our passage today is Jesus' appearance to his disciples by the sea. The well-known Sea of Galilee, or as John calls it, the Sea of Tiberias. And this appearing probably takes place a few days after Jesus appeared to believing Thomas when the disciples were locked up in their safe room in Jerusalem. And we looked at that last week. There is also a picture of something here. So the subject, superficially, here is Jesus appearing to his disciples by the sea. But there's more going on here. There often is with John. And I'm going to suggest that there is a picture of something here. There's more to this than breakfast with Jesus. And Lord willing, we will see what it is that John wants us to see. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word that you've given us. And we thank you for the promises you've given us to do miraculous things when your word is preached. So help me to preach well, God. And help all of us to hear well. And we pray that you touch our minds this morning. That you touch our hearts this morning. That you would touch our wills this morning. I pray that all of us would come to a greater understanding of who Jesus is. And we pray this and ask for this in his name. Amen. So turn with me, if you haven't, to John chapter 21, and I'll begin here by reading the first few verses. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. So the disciples have gone home. They were in Jerusalem, of course. They will be heading back to Jerusalem in the next couple of weeks, but in the meantime, they and presumably their families need to eat. And so in order for they and their families to eat, of course, 
They need to get to work. And their work is fishing. So that's what they're doing when they're fishing. For some of you, most of you, fishing is a, a hobby. It's not, it's not your work. But Peter, as best we can tell, had a fishing business. And so he's getting back to doing his work, providing for his family. Some people, as I was reading and studying this week, have actually criticized the disciples for doing this. And the criticism has gone so far as to say that this event here of the disciples back home fishing on the Sea of Galilee was them abandoning the calling that Jesus gave them. And they're sort of just dismissing what Jesus said. We're not going to do that. We'd rather go fishing. I don't think so. There's no rebuke from Jesus here. In fact, we'll see it's quite the opposite. I think what we see here is that their commission and their calling is not a replacement for practical responsibility. I was tempted to make the sermon about that, but that's not the main point here. But it is a point. The disciples here, not waiting in Jerusalem, but then going back to Galilee. They'll be back to Jerusalem and going back because there is work to be done. They have responsibilities. We're seeing here that their commission, their calling, even from Jesus, it was not a replacement for practical responsibility. So hear that this morning, all of us, that our commission and calling is not a replacement for our practical responsibilities. We may have things that we feel that God has put on our heart, that God has called us to do. Maybe it's formal ministry. Maybe it's formal ministry in a church, but that should not replace your primary responsibilities. You're not off the hook from your primary responsibilities. The unfortunately common negative example of this, and I've seen it so many times, is a minister who prioritizes his calling over his own family. Friends, it's not one or the other. It should be both and. So you couldn't have a a bigger commission and calling than what these disciples had, but they still have responsibilities. The disciples' calling did not lead them to neglect their responsibilities, and I think they're a good example to us, and it's worth noting. So before we move on to verse the rest of verse 3, let me say a couple things to help you visualize the story that we are reading. And what I want to help you briefly to visualize is the kind of fishing that the disciples are doing. So for some of you, this will be helpful as you're imagining this story in your mind. They're in a small boat. It's probably the size of a, a small school bus. And the boat is moved around by oars, and it would have one sail. 
And the way they would be fishing was to go to different parts of the Sea of Galilee. And you've read this elsewhere. They would throw out a net. This would be a large net. And tied around the perimeter of the net would be weights or stones. And as the net was thrown out, those stones would drop down. And they would trap any fish that happened to be swimming inside the net at the time. And then they would typically need to jump into the water. That'll become clear in a while. To retrieve the net. And as they pulled the net up, the rocks at the bottom would close together. And they'd have their catch of fish. So picture that. That's what the disciples are doing in the story that we're reading today. It's going to help some things make more sense. So the rest of verse 3. We only read half of verse 3. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Which for this kind of fishing is surprising. Nothing? It doesn't say they didn't catch many fish. That would be more understandable. But they actually, fishing all night, were told, caught nothing. Now let me pause again here. If you are reading this Gospel of John, whether you were in the first century reading it right after John wrote it, or you're here today in the 21st century, When you are reading this Gospel of John, and if you've read the Gospel of Luke, remember there's four authors, they all wrote four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is John's. If you're reading John in the first century or today, and you've also read Luke, which John was the last one to write his Gospel account, so most of his readers had already read Luke. If you're reading John and you've read Luke, you would here, be instantly reminded of a story in Luke chapter 5. After these few details that are given, you would be reminded of something that happened in Luke chapter 5. It is a very similar story, a very similar event that began the same way as this one. Remember, there also, the disciples had been out all night in Luke chapter 5. The disciples had been out all night fishing in a boat. In fact, very likely it's the same exact boat. It's Peter's boat. And they had been fishing all night, and just like this, they had caught nothing. And then Jesus told them, Hey, why don't you drop your net one more time? And they caught so many fish. Do you remember that story? They caught so many fish that the nets began to break. And as they got the fish into the boats, the boats began to sink. So John, as he's writing this, he has us connecting these two stories with many similarities, and we'll see some striking 
differences. So he's telling it in a very similar way. He's drawing out at the very beginning the exact similarities so that you're reading and say, I remember this. Jesus did this before. And you start to remember the details of that. Oh, it's lining up. It's lining up. And he's doing that because there are some striking differences here. And they're going to be emphasized if you're remembering Luke chapter 5. So he's, he's got us making that connection. And we'll see where that connection is going to lead us. But let's keep reading. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. That's probably just because it was still pretty dark and they're a hundred yards off the shore. I don't think it's anything more than that. Verse 5. Jesus said to them, children or boys, do you have any fish? You hear this voice right from the shore calling out, do you have any fish yet? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So remember, they don't know that this is Jesus. So this is just unsolicited fishing advice, which in my experience is a pretty common fishing experience. Unsolicited advice from other fishermen, or better yet, people on the shore who aren't even fishing. I just went fishing yesterday because, you know, I had to have a good story for the sermon. <laughs> I did, that's not why I did it. I wasn't even thinking of that. But I went out with, um, with uh, Peyton and, and Brady and uh, Jackson and, and Blaze, and uh, we went out fishing, and we both gave and received this sort of unsolicited advice. This just sort of happens. Hey, have you, have you fished over there? Have you tried over there? Have you, have you thrown your line in here? Uh, maybe I've better luck there. Uh, what kind of what bait are you using? What, 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 what color are you using? Right? There's all kinds of questions that you might ask each other. And sometimes, sometimes that counsel or advice is genuinely helpful. And other times it's just annoying. And you really don't want to hear the advice. And you're sort of just shaking your head to yourself. Like, thanks, thanks a lot, Mr. Bassmaster. I didn't, I didn't think of that. <laughs> we find ourselves maybe being irritated by it. So think about this story. Here's this voice calling out. They've been fishing all night. No fish. Well, try the, the right side, which the starboard side. In those days, it was considered the lucky side. Why don't you try the right side? And if you do, I bet you catch some fish. For whatever reason, even though they did not know that it was Jesus who was coaching them, they, they listened. Let's keep reading. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So there it is. There's another connection 
to Luke chapter 5. It's a miraculous catch. And listen to verse 7. John makes the connection. Right? John makes the connection. He was there in Luke 5. So when this miraculous catch happens, John makes the connection. Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, because of all the fish, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. That's whose voice that is. The advice we just got came from Jesus. So, again, imagine what's happening here. So as they reach down, at least Peter and John, apparently, side by side here, as they reach down and, and feel the weight of this net, and they begin to pull the net up, and the water starts swirling and bubbling, John makes the connection. It clicks for John. It's the Lord. It's Jesus. This is, this is a miracle. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Again, Peter cracks me up. It's just classic Peter. So John, did you catch that? John is the first to perceive, because he's using his head. John is the first to perceive, and Peter is the first to act. I mean, we all want to be a balance of that, right? Some of us, we, we, we're, we're, we're dense, we take too long to perceive, and some of us, we take too long to act. If you do, guys, if you don't know which you are, ask your wife. She'd be happy to share with you. But that's Peter. So John figures it out first. It clicks for John. He passes it on to Peter. And Peter just jumps into the water. And it's funny. It's probably his boat. It's probably his enterprise. And he leaves all his buddies in the boat to deal with the fish. And he just he jumps in, goes for a swim. So let's get to the shore with everyone. Verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Now listen, John does not always give a bunch of details. You know that. Oftentimes, his account is very quick and sort of punchy, and it lacks details. When John slows down and gives you seemingly arbitrary details, we've talked about this before, pay attention. What is John doing? So obviously he's, he's painting a picture for us. Jesus is cooking breakfast. Jesus is cooking food for them. Their fish are still in the net but he has a fire going, and he's got a fish. He's got toast. He's on the beach cooking. And there's a funny little detail here. I think it's kind of funny. We're told by John it is a charcoal fire. Who cares? Why are you mentioning 
that, John? Why do we care what kind of fire it is, whether it's a, a wood fire or a charcoal fire? Why this silly little detail? Maybe there's nothing to that. Maybe there's nothing to this. But remember something. Remember that this is and is going to continue to be culminating next week about Peter. Maybe there's more to this. There is only one other place in all of the Gospels where this word for charcoal fire is used. And it is used to describe the kind of fire that Peter was warming himself by when he denied Jesus. I don't know. We'll think about that more next week. But that's pretty interesting. So now here Peter swims to shore. And what's the first thing he smells? This charcoal fire. Think about the last time that he smelled that smell. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. What a story. Jesus invites them to bring some of their fish and join him for breakfast. Some of their 153 fish. So they go all night. They don't catch any fish. And then this haul, 153 fish. Now this is interesting. You would not believe over the centuries the amount of ink that has been spilled to try and explain this number. Many writers assuming that it's got to be symbolic in some way. And I found a bunch of what I would call strange ones coming out of the 4th century. So I don't know what they were doing back then, but they're trying to figure this out. Why? That's a great question. Why 153? Is there something symbolic about that? Amount. So, for example, Jerome noted that a biologist at the time said there were exactly 153 identified species of fish. So maybe as they're fishers of men, we're told elsewhere, maybe this represents the idea that God is going to save people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. But I guess they went back and found out that the biologist actually had said 157. So hopefully Jerome didn't spend too much time working on that one. But listen to Augustine. And you, you can't get much better than Augustine. If you, wanna, you want help understanding the Bible, right? you go and you read Augustine. He got crazy with this 153 fish. Listen to Augustine's idea. I guess it has to do with triangulation. I don't even know what that means. I looked it up and it's just telling me like about cell phones. So I think it's a mathematical thing. <laughs> I've heard about it, but I don't know what it is. Listen to what he said though. 153. 10, so we're not starting with 153. 
Ten is the number of the law. This is a quote. But the law without grace kills. To the number of the law, therefore, we add seven, the number of the Spirit, in order to obtain the fullness of the divine revelation as a power of life. But, he then adds, the sum of the numbers from 1 to 17 inclusive is 153. Right? 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 plus 6 all the way to 17, and you get 153. So that the number 153 signifies all those who are included in the saving operation of divine grace, which makes reconciliation with the law. Nor is this all. The three is the symbol of the Trinity, and the triple 50 brings out the idea of unity in the Spirit who is revealed in a sevenfold operation. I mean, I'm impressed if you even tracked with that. I think there's a much more simple explanation here. 153. Anyone, I would propose that anyone here who fishes did not think that was weird. Because usually... Fishermen know the exact details of their catch. So let me illustrate this for you. This could be a successful illustration, or it could be a very unsuccessful illustration. I would not normally do this, and I have not prepared my son for this, but I'm going to ask my son, Peyton, a question. Peyton, are you listening? <laughs> How many bass did you catch a week ago in Spenceville? Ten. There you go. He's been fishing since then, by the way, like three times. How long was the biggest bass that you caught? Yes, it was 16 inches. And about how much did that bass weigh? Okay, there you go. Did you hear that? That's my 13, almost 14-year-old son. He knows, exa- he knows how many fish he caught. He knows how long the longest one was. And he knows approximately how much it weighed. So you see, the first thing I'd propose, the first thing the disciples did was count these fish. I mean, this is a very, how many, you could just hear them saying to each other, right? How many fish you think this is? They count them out, 153. Thank you, Peyton, for making that a successful illustration. Can you imagine if he gave the wrong answers? That would have been terrible sermon over. Just a couple more details that John has for us, and then we'll finish up at least our reading of the text. So verse 12, rest of verse 12. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. It's sort of a weird sentence. Let me read that again. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. That's interesting. They they knew it was Jesus, but... They wanted to ask him, who are you? But they were afraid to ask. 
That, that's what I'm getting out of verse 12. Which, which I think is just the disciples wrestling with comprehending the impossible. I mean, they know it's Jesus, but how can it be Jesus? It's, it's that kind of a thing. And if it's Jesus, that's going to cause some awe and some fear and some trepidation. So they're wrestling with this. How, how is this really Jesus? We know it's Jesus. How is that possible? Verse 13. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So what? You should be asking yourself that. You should always be asking yourself that when you read the Bible. So what? What is the point here? What does this mean for me? What does God want me to see? What does he want me to understand? How does this apply to my life? You always need to be doing this with God's Word. This is how God's Word moves from your head to your heart. Understand, apply. Understand, apply. It goes like that, in that order, always. Understand God's Word, apply God's Word. And a good sermon will help you do both. So I'm trying to help us this morning do both. I hope we understand Let's understand more deeply. Let's apply this. Let's look now more closely at what Jesus has done here. I proposed at the beginning that there's a picture of something here. This is a lot more than just breakfast with Jesus. That's not the point. Wow, Jesus makes a great breakfast. There's something else here. There's there's, there's lessons from God for us that he, that he must be illustrating in this account. So here's what I think we have here from Jesus and John, who's telling us the story. Here's what I think we have. In this account, in this story we just read, is a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his struggling church. And let me work out what I mean by that and where I'm getting that. So on the surface, it's very clear what's happening here. Everyone can understand this. They're fishing, they, they catch no fish. Jesus on the shore, he calls to them and Tells them to do the other side. They bring in the fish, 153 of them. Peter gets excited, swims in the shore. They meet him there. Jesus cooks some breakfast. I mean, no, no one here is having a hard time understanding that. But so what? 
what are we being shown here? Why is it unfolding the way it's unfolding? Why is Jesus doing this the way that he's doing this? Why does John include some details and leave out other details? I think what we have here is a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his struggling church. So let me bring that out in one, two, three points. Number one, here's the first thing to see a picture in this relationship. Number one, see the church struggling. Or see Christians struggling. See the disciples struggling. That's what they're a picture of. They're struggling, aren't they? Verse 3. Read again with me. Verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So here they are, struggling. Here they are, working hard, accomplishing nothing. Not a little. Nothing. Ask yourself if you've struggled like this. Are you struggling like this? Have you felt like your, your work is for nothing? Have you felt like you should be further down the road than you are? Have you felt like your life spiritually is like one step forward, two steps back? Are you dealing and battling with sin that you would have thought you would have been over years ago? Do you still have the same kind of sinful, knee-jerk reactions and you wonder, is this ever going to get better? Is this ever going to change? Am I even growing? Am I even sanctified? Am I even pleasing God? This is also, we know, this struggle of the disciples is not just a physical struggle, like not catching fish. It is a spiritual struggle. Remember what Jesus has made clear that fishing for these disciples represents. Do you remember that? He told them in Luke 5. He told them in Mark chapter 1, verse 17. Hey, I know you've been fishing for fish, and they still will. But he says, I'm going to make you, you know, fishers of men. And that's what he commissions them to do. That's what he commissions all of us to do. The Christian's work in part is discipling. It's telling people around you the truth about who God is, about who they are, about who Jesus is, about what the gospel is. It's evangelism. It's loving one another. It's loving others. And this is difficult work. The Christian life, Christian ministry is difficult work. And you will be like, you will certainly feel like a little boat out in the middle of a sea 
throwing nets in the water and getting nothing all night. So number one, see the church struggling. Number two, see the church struggling under the watchful eye of Christ. See the church struggling under the watchful eye of Christ. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. I personally am glad they didn't know it was him. Because it is good for me to know that I am under the watchful eye of Jesus even when I don't see him. Or when I don't think he's there or when I don't feel like he's there. Friends, though Christians may struggle, they are always under the watchful eye of Jesus. Always. Christian, you are always under the tender care of Jesus. Christian, you are always helped by Jesus. So there are the disciples, and you're picturing it. There are the disciples struggling in the sea, and unbeknownst to them, Jesus is watching them and then helping. That is true for you, Christian. The disciples might wonder, when they got to shore, how long were you standing there? All night, maybe. I've been watching you all night. Kind of funny, actually. <laughs> and what's their thought? What's our thought? Why didn't you do something sooner? Why didn't you do something sooner? I would have done something sooner. Like when I was struggling for a second. Give me a second of struggling and then rescue me. Why, why did you leave me for so long? You felt like that. And then something happens and you're awakened to the reality. Maybe it's right now, this morning, that he's there. I'm under his watchful eye. He's caring for me. I'm precious to him. He loves me. He's got a plan. It's for my good. It's for his glory. You're reminded of that again. What's happening? You're in the sea. You're struggling. It's dark. He's on the shore. He's watching you. Remember again, I know I keep saying this, John wants you to connect this with the event of Luke 5. Same lake, same boat, same mountains, same water, same failure, same miraculous catch. And there are many similarities, but remember what I said? There are also striking differences, and here's one of them that stands out. Jesus is no longer in the boat with them but he is still with them. You see what he's showing them? In Luke 5, I don't know if you remembered that, he was in the boat. He was in the boat with them. He was, when Jesus walked this earth, physically, in the flesh, present with the disciples. And that wasn't going to be the case anymore. 
he was no longer going to be in the boat when they struggled. But that did not mean that he was not with them. They were still, they know now, under his watchful eye. S. Lewis Johnson said this, The Lord Jesus is not in the boat with them as he was in the days of his flesh, but he is on the shore in resurrection glory, in the glory of the resurrection, carrying on his work continually, even though he personally and physically is no longer here. Same with you, Christian. You are, every second of every day, under the watchful eye of Jesus Christ. And there's a picture of that here. Finally, number three. See the struggling church dependent on Christ. So the pictures of the church struggling, Christians struggling, see that though they are struggling, they are under the watchful eye of Christ, and then finally see the struggling church dependent on Christ. How dependent? Let's read again verse 5 and verse 6. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. This is pretty simple. Christians will not be, cannot be fruitful apart from Christ. We are completely dependent on Jesus. He is illustrating something for them that he taught them explicitly that John mentions in chapter 15. In chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And he's illustrating that for them. All night they caught nothing. Friends, without Jesus, nothing. With Jesus, 153 fish. Not just Without Jesus, nothing, right? Here's abundance, right? With Jesus, some fish, a fish that tastes really bad with a lot of bones in it, but at least you won't die. <laughs> we think about Jesus like that sometimes. 153 fish. And yet, here's another surprise. Another difference. In Luke chapter 5, we're told the nets began to break. Here's another funny detail John includes. Did you notice that? These nets did not break. Here they are doing their work. 
Here they are struggling. Here they are fishers of men. And here you are today, Christian. One commentator said, the gospel net will never break. No matter how many converts it catches, there is no limit to the number it will take. And maybe that's what we're seeing here. Not only that, under this heading of see the struggling church dependent on Christ, we need to be careful not to turn that on its head. Remember that it is we as Christians who need Jesus. It is not Jesus who needs us. I'm dependent on him. He is not dependent on me. It's not up to me. It is not up to you. Jesus is sovereign. If you want to push this further and remember that these fish represent men who are coming to Christ, Jesus does not need you to save his people. Jesus already had a fish going on the fire. He said, I'm good. He didn't need their fish. They need him. He doesn't need them. He's got his fish. Thank you very much. I'll take some of your fish. So Christians, you notice we have work to do. This isn't to promote laziness. We have work to do, and we must be doing the work that God gives us to do. But we should not be paralyzed by thinking that this is all riding on us, that it is all up to us. I find that thinking is not motivating. It is unhelpful. Jesus is in control. He wants you to work. He requires you to work. He will use your work. He does not need you. He doesn't need anything. He is God. So there's the struggling church. We can't turn that on its head. Dependent on Christ. So in conclusion, let's say a few things. Let's, in conclusion, let's zoom in from the, the group, right, these seven disciples representing the church. Let's zoom in from this struggling group to one individual who really comes out in next week's text, but he also, you see, he's, he's sort of the main character here other than Jesus. And what are we to see here? Let's zoom in on on someone who looks a lot like me and you, especially in chapter 21, it's Peter. This is, I think, the most striking and the most striking because it is so different from Luke chapter 5. I want you to look at this with me. There's something we see in Peter here when we look at Luke 5, when we look at John chapter 21, something I can relate to, as your pastor, 
talking with many of you. I know many of you can relate to. I think this is a common experience for many of us, and it is this. My guilt and my shame keep me from Christ and joy. My guilt and my shame keep me from Christ, and they keep me from joy. So let me show you this. First, verse 7. Look at this with me. Verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. I had weird questions when I read that. So first of all, the the word when it says he was stripped for work means he was naked for work. He was either naked or he was really close to it. And that was common for the fishermen in that day who would be getting in and out of the water and dealing with the nets. So that's that's not the strange part. The strange part is that he put his clothes on, to me anyway, before he jumped in the water to swim to Jesus. If In my experience, you're you're taking some of your clothes off if you've got to jump in the water. You're not stopping for a second and putting some clothes on. So Peter, before he gets in and swims to Jesus, he covers himself. He covers himself. We're told the word there is that he was, until he did that, he was naked. Which, remember... Ever since Genesis 2 and throughout your Bible, nakedness is almost always intimately connected to guilt and shame. And we've talked a lot about that in the past and in other sermons. But just be reminded or know that when the Bible talks about nakedness, it is always connecting that physical thing to something spiritual and emotional. And that is guilt and shame. So, hang with me. So Peter covers himself, and then he dives into the water to get to Jesus. And here's the striking thing. Here's what is so different from Peter's actions in Luke chapter 5. So let me read it to you. So you know what Peter just did? I don't remember. What did he do back in Luke chapter 5? Jesus was in his boat, Jesus was teaching, and then they're going to go out and fish. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus, he said to Simon, that's Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. Here it is. But when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter 
asked Jesus to depart in Luke 5. In John 21, Peter dives in to get to Jesus. That's a striking difference. That's opposite reaction. What's happening here? In Luke 5, Peter asked Jesus to depart. Well, this is true for all of us. Our basic nature is to put space between us and God because of our guilt and shame. That's what's happening with Peter in Luke 5. He realizes who he's dealing with. The Holy One. The Perfect One. And this happens all over the place in the Bible. And he can't handle it. He feels exposed before God who, of course, knows him and knows his heart. And even though he knows Jesus loves him, this isn't depart from me. I'm afraid you're going to hurt me. This is depart from me. It is shame. It is guilt. I can't bear to be close to you. This is why did Adam and Eve, when God came into the garden after they had sinned, though before they sinned, they'd been walking with them, talking with them, in fellowship with them. After they sinned, they ran from them and they hid. They hid themselves. They hid behind trees. I just got to get away from you, God. I need space between you and me. I feel so guilty for what I've done. I feel so ashamed at what I've done. You'll go days, you'll go weeks without reading your Bible, without communing with Jesus. And often one of the reasons you're not communing with him is because of your shame and the guilt you feel. I just can't go to him right now. I can't read his word right now. Just when I do that, I feel his gaze on me, and it's just more than I can handle. You leave the Bible, you leave churches, you leave Christians often because the guilt and the shame, it's unbearable. That's that's Peter in Luke chapter 5. Oh, you got to get away from me, Jesus. Get away from me, Lord. Why? What was his reason? For I am a sinful man. So before this same thing happened, Peter wants distance between himself and Jesus. And now he can't get close to him quick enough. He makes a fool of himself. He still covers himself. But he's swimming to Jesus. And if you think about it, this time, Peter has even more to be ashamed of. He has even more to be ashamed of. Denied Jesus three times. And and Luke tells us in chapter 22 that He denied him that third time, and just as Jesus predicted, a rooster crowed. And then Peter and Jesus happened to be going through the courtyard at the same time, and their eyes locked, we're told. Can you imagine how that felt for Peter? There's no one he loved as much as he loved Jesus. And there he was, a sinful man, committing worse sin against Jesus than he ever had. He's got that on his conscience right now. 
And yet still, he doesn't want distance like he did before between he and Jesus. He can't get to him fast enough. What's changed? Peter now knows what I hope you all know. He knows the love of Jesus. He knows the depth of the love of Jesus. He knows the forgiveness of Jesus. He knows the acceptance of Jesus. He knows the no matter what unconditional nature of the love of Christ. And as ashamed as he is, he's diving in. Can you apply that? Friends, dive in. Get to Jesus. Get to Christ. If you have never come to Jesus, what are you waiting for? Come to Jesus. Hear what he has done. Hear who he is and take him at his word and believe him. Who else should be Lord of your life than this great Savior and treasure? It is time to turn from your sin, to turn from your own ways, and place your faith and trust in the work that Jesus has done out of his great love for you to reconcile you to a holy and perfect God. If you do want to come to him, at least I will be up here after service and I would love to talk to you about that. And I'll wait for you. Christians, dive in. Your guilt and your shame and your sin is not big enough to keep you from Jesus. Where else are you going to go? And what silly places you go, and I go. Go to Jesus. Go back to Him with your conviction and with your guilt and with your shame. And I pray that it turns you to ask forgiveness again and to know that you are forgiven again. He does not love you less because of it. And how does the story end? What's going to happen if you dive in. It's going to happen if you take that risk. Well, what happened to Peter? How will you be received? Christian, how have you been received? How was Peter received by Jesus after what he had done? How was he received? I got some breakfast here. Would you like to come and eat with me? I've made it for you. Come on, sit down.
Let's look at each other. Let's pass food to one another. Let's, let's talk. Let's enjoy each other. Let's thank God for this food and, and let's eat it together because we're friends. There's nothing between us. You're my beloved and I am yours. So let's eat breakfast. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you that despite of all that we've done, you still call us to your table to, to eat with you and to be with you. We're thankful that one of the ways you describe eternity is sitting at a banqueting table with you, God. Even in the presence of our enemies who cannot affect this, who cannot touch this, who cannot interrupt this, who have no say in this or over this, but we are safely at your table enjoying the good gifts that you've given us. Help us to live like that today. I pray, Lord, that our guilt and our shame would not keep us as it did not keep Peter from you. Oh God, we love you and give you all praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name.